Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. What's it like to feel excruciating pain and not be believed? If I'm crying, they're thinking, okay, you're faking. But then when I'm too calm, they're like, you're not sick. It's it's almost to the point where I want to say, what do you want from me? On the other hand, what's it like to not be able to feel any pain at all? So what really put fear into my parents was uh, while I was teething, I uh, had chewed off a good portion of the uh, front of my tongue, and that caused a lot of bleeding to occur. And meet a man who inflicts pain on himself using insects to form his sting pain index. Is it a burning pain? Is it a piercing pain? Is it what I call a chemical pain? Feels like a single clean pain, something that's more just pure. I'm Kyone Wolf. Stay tuned for three snapshots of pain. That's next on Audacious, after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Imagine feeling like you have glass shards running through your blood, and imagine your doctors don't believe how much pain you're in. Then imagine you're in a totally different body, incapable of feeling any pain at all. And then, in body number three, you inflict pain on yourself so you can rate it for science. Pain is a mystery in so many ways, but the way we evaluate it, make sense of it, and how we recognize it in other people can change how we understand it. Today, three snapshots of pain. Amy Mason Cooley of Mobile, Alabama, is a black woman with sickle cell disease. It's an inherited condition that affects one out of every 365 black people. In people like Amy, red blood cells become crescent or sickle-shaped and have a hard time passing through small blood vessels. Sickle cell disease often causes so much swelling and pain that's felt in the chest, abdomen, joints, and bones. The pain can be excruciating and lasts anywhere from a few hours to many weeks and often puts patients in the hospital, which, to my surprise, was where Amy joined me from. We talked about her experience not only with the pain of sickle cell, but of not being believed about the severity of her suffering. Seeing her over Zoom in the hospital bed, I asked her what happened. I was fine yesterday, but sickle cell is unpredictable, so yeah. But that doesn't stop anything. I do a lot of work from the hospital. I've graduated college from the hospital, so I'm here. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Uh, how are you feeling right now? So, <laughs> not too bad. Um, it's not in a crisis to where I can't walk this time. It has been times where it's been that severe to where I couldn't walk. So I think I caught it early enough to maybe I can do two or three days and be able to go home. But I'm fine. I mean, I guess I'm used to it. I'm resilient. I've done it so many times. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but uh, so let's just jump right in. Will you Will you talk about the earliest that you felt symptoms? What did it feel like? When did you know something was wrong? Kindergarten. I can remember it like yesterday. I had pain in my big right toe. 
And when you're a, a baby with sickle cell, for some reason, it'll swell up your fingers um, and your toes. And it got to the point where I refused to walk because it, was, it started to hurt me so bad. And my kindergarten teacher would notice it. This lady was a, like a total gym. Like she would literally pick me up and rock me during class and teach class to make sure I was okay. If it wasn't for her, I don't even know if I would have been diagnosed properly because they kept telling my mom it was rheumatoid arthritis. But turns out it was sickle cell. On top of that, I have a sister that's eight years older than me that had sickle cell, didn't know what it was until I was diagnosed. So she suffered all of those years of being sick and never knew what was going on with her. So I, that's my earliest memory is kindergarten. When did it start getting really bad or was it bad the whole time? Maybe seventh or eighth grade is when it, I noticed that it was just becoming more severe. It would be times where I would be so sick, but I want to be normal, even though we don't know what normal is, where I would go to school sick, you know, try to take my tests and things and, you know, try to hang out with my friends, try, you know, I did uh, extracurricular activities. I did, you know, dance and ballet, tap and things like that. And it was more so because the doctors told me I couldn't do it. I didn't like that. I didn't like to take um, no for an answer. So um, that's kind of when I noticed it uh, about middle school. And then it got really bad um, high school, so bad that I could, one of the times I remember is I actually passed out in class because the pain was so severe. I think my body just kind of shut down. I made sure I stayed in my room so my mom wouldn't see me getting dressed for school because she would see me, she would know right away that I was sick. So I waited and I was almost late to school, but but I made it. And in between classes, I would go into the bathroom and just cry, cry, cry because the pain was just horrible. What does the pain feel like? Is there even a way to explain it? Okay, imagine you have like a bunch of tiny glass shards and it's like they're just running through your veins. Like somebody's sawing on you with the rusty handsaw just constantly. And it can last for a day, can last for a week. The longest practice I've had lasted for 42 days. So it takes a toll on you mentally as well. What are some of the things that go through your head when you've got this pain and people don't believe you? And what kind of responses are you getting when you do report your pain? They don't listen to you. They don't believe that you're sick because sickle cell is a disease you can't see. I wish I could let them see it, but you can't. I got, there's no possible way. And then I have all these scenarios in my head where it's like, if I'm crying, then they're thinking, okay, you're, you're faking. So I've learned being sick to try to keep myself calm because stress can make your crisis worse. So I kind of, I try to keep myself calm um, so that I don't exacerbate it. But then when I'm too calm, they're like, you're not sick. It's, it's almost to the point where I want to say, what do you want from me? I, got, I have no reason to make this up. It's, it's tough. I've had that doctor laughed. Like he just looked at me and like literally giggled at the fact that I couldn't walk. And he thought that I was drug seeking pretending so that I could get medications. <laughs> it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating. It's to the point where you have to choose 
your battle. Are you going to battle sickle cell at that moment? Or are you going to battle this doctor and go head to head? And it's been a lot of times where I've just had to let them talk to me like crap so that I could get the care I needed. But I shouldn't have to do that. But it happens often. And I try my best not to bring out, you know, point out that people have racial biases. I don't think they mean to a lot of times. But in medicine, it's, it's very, it's severe. It's almost as, as severe as walking, you know, on the streets every day. Do you feel like an appropriate response is, if you know, you see these studies that show that Black women, they're less likely to be prescribed painkillers and, and pain relief, that maybe doctors should be sort of on overdrive in the other way, like hyper-believe Black women. Like, what, what do you think is, is, is a good way for people to start shifting their brains on this? Not that it's your job to do this. All we ever ask is to be heard. Involve the patients. If you listen to us, you know, maybe you can make some progress in this, but it shouldn't. All these years have went by and there's no progress that's being made. That's a huge red flag. I just, it's not a study long ago in Harvard where 55% of the uh, students think that, oh no, Black people don't feel pain as much as Caucasians. The logic is crazy because they say it's, oh, well, their ancestors were slaves so they can handle more. I don't even know how that makes sense in the medical world. Like, look at the Tuskegee, um, what happened in Tuskegee. They, we try to be trusting, but when things like that happen, it's like, like, seriously, can I trust you? It's frustrating. It's frustrating. And it, the, the, like, it's almost like I'm at a loss for words. I can remember times where I sat in the ER for 10 hours passing out in pain. Like they saw me passing out in pain. And what they did not know is my husband was white. My husband took the wheelchair and pushed me to the back and said, you need to see her right now. They didn't question or anything, took me straight back. But I had been sitting there that whole time and just blew my mind. But he can't be with me every time. Like with that this doctor that mistreated me the a couple of months ago, that's right when COVID was here. I couldn't have visitors. I was here by myself. We were almost like coming up with an escape plan in case something happened. You know, my, seriously, my husband was like, if you need to get out of there, just call me. Like, let me know. I'll come get you. Goodness. He was like, I'll come get you. Why do I have to do that? I'm sick. I'm supposed to be in a place where I can be safe when I'm sick, you know, in the hospital, I try not to go through uh, like a history lesson, but I almost feel like I have to. So they get the gist. Doesn't matter the title. Look, look at Serena Williams. She almost died during childbirth. She, everybody knows who she is and she got treated that way. If people can't see that that's a racial bias, I don't know what it is. After one of your experiences at the hospital, where they smirked at you and they, you know, you were suffering for so long. And then finally the medical staff got you on medication hours after, you know, and you finally stabilized. You'd written a Facebook post with your frustrations about what you'd going through. It was shared over 13,000 times and you got a ton of responses. What kind of responses did you get from people? Oh goodness. I got a lot of, actually had people reach out and tell me about childbirth where they, you know, could feel everything that was going on during the C-section and the doctor's like, oh, you're fine. You know, would not medicate them anymore. 
I, I've lost two children myself, but even just my, my birthing them, I didn't have to do a C-section, but it was just, it was painful. Now, if I had to compare labor to sickle cell, I would have 20 kids back to get back before I had to go through another crisis. But I had tons of people, I mean, even in other countries, it was so many people that came with their stories, so many people that emailed me with their stories and just shared them with me. And it was just that day, it was, it was overwhelming. It was heartbreaking too, because it's like, I'm not the only one dealing with this. Like, why is no one listening to us? Just listen to us, listen to us and we can get some changes. I just did a, a live video a couple of weeks ago and was so frustrated with medication because they're trying to get my medication correct. And it's been this last, I guess two or three months, it's been horrible. I've jumped through every hoop they wanted me to, but it's like, they're not meeting me halfway. Um, but I was so frustrated when I was leaving the doctor, I had this thought and I've never had it. It was to the point where I said, you know, I know why people with chronic illnesses kill themselves. And I said, because nobody is paying attention to them. Like we are trying to get help. But if I were to say that to my doctor, he would say, oh, I think you need to see a psychiatrist. And I don't need to see a psychiatrist. I need a doctor to treat my chronic illness. But when we're treated the way they do, it just makes us feel like it's easier for us not to be here. I'm not, I mean, I'm nowhere near suicidal. I'm not, I, don't have to, I could never do that. But it's just almost self-explanatory now. Like, just listen to us. Hear us out. Amy Mason Cooley, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for talking about this topic. Amy's been an advocate for sickle cell patients for over 20 years, living with her husband in Mobile, Alabama. She's also the founder of Cruising with Sickle Cell, a group that brings together sickle cell patients and their friends and families, doctors and advocates. You can find them on Facebook at Cruising with Sickle Cell. I wanted to hear about what studies have been done to explore the experiences that Amy and so many other black women especially have lived through. And turns out there have been a bunch of these studies. And a group of clinicians at George Washington University examined those studies together to see what they could learn. I spoke with Dr. Andrew Meltzer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and the Director of Clinical Research at GWU. I asked him to break down the objective of the study. We were curious whether or not our patients were getting different care based upon their race or based upon their ethnicity. And uh, we aim to look at research that's been published on the administration of pain medication for acutely painful situations where patients have come to the ER with a painful condition and required analgesia or pain medication. And what we decided to do was try to combine all those studies that have been out there and published and all the ones that are out there where they described the patients who got pain medicine and differentiated them by race or ethnicity and see if patients, when we looked at it all together, whether or not there was a difference in the amount of pain medicine that uh, the patients got per their race or ethnicity. And what were some of the methods you used to figure all this out? We went through what we call sort of a standardized systematic review with a meta-analysis. So basically what we do is we do a structured review of all studies that are published. And what we do is we look for everything that's out there. We go through it several times with multiple different of the researchers. And then we sort of combine the numbers 
Then we give those numbers to Dr. Ma, and then Dr. Ma is able to sort of combine everything together and see whether or not there's a difference. And that's the meta-analysis part of it. So there's the systematic review and then the meta-analysis part. And uh, so that's sort of how the methods come. And we end up with a total of, I believe we had about 15 or so studies and about 7,000 patients. And those were all patients that had come to the emergency department with uh, painful conditions. And we tried to see whether or not black patients, female patients, uh, non-Hispanic or Hispanic white patients were more or less likely to receive analgesia for their painful condition in U.S. emergency departments. So what did you find out from this meta-analysis of how the pain of Black and Hispanic people has been treated in U.S. ERs? Well, basically what we found out was that certain groups were less likely to receive analgesia. So we saw that of our total study population, that Black patients were less likely than white patients to receive analgesia for acute pain. And also we found a similar, but not to the point of significance, finding with Hispanic patients also. And uh, this was when we looked at patients divided up per race and per ethnicity. So what's your overall conclusion with this one? Well, we don't want to draw too much from this, but it is really interesting to see. And obviously finding positive findings is interesting and it's provocative and uh, really opens our eyes to why this might be going on. So one thing to take into account is that you know, we're looking at multiple different ERs and some ERs are more likely to take care of African-American patients and some ERs are more likely to take care of Hispanic patients. So it's possible that maybe an inner city ER or an ER in a Latino community maybe just gives out less pain medication than an ER in maybe a more suburban or more rural area that has more white patients. And it's not specifically about black versus white, but it's about one ER versus another ER. So that's one thing to take into account. Another thing to take into account is that maybe this is not necessarily a negative, that maybe giving more analgesia, especially opioid analgesia to our white patients, that's maybe that's a negative also. So maybe we are maybe doing more harm to some people by trying by overprescribing pain medication also. And then I think the third thing is to think, well, maybe it's because the doctors, which tend to be more likely to be white physicians, maybe they're relating less to the patients who are in pain. And maybe because of that, they're prescribing less and maybe they do have some intrinsic bias. But within our data, we weren't able to specifically look at the relationship, whether or not we had a white doctor and a white patient or a black doctor and a white patient or vice versa. So that was where I think we want to take the next step to see whether or not there's implicit bias here and whether or not certain physicians are maybe providing less analgesia based upon racial or ethnic uh, factors. What do you think the odds are that's true? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the research is out there. And I, I think that within other fields, we've seen that implicit bias exists. We generally know that if you can relate to your patient and have empathy for your patient, then you're potentially more likely to provide medication such as analgesia that might relieve pain. I hate to infer too much based upon this data without doing more research, but uh, I think it's definitely possible, and I would say possibly likely, <laughs> that physicians are potentially under-prescribing for painful conditions that they see for people that maybe they relate to less. Um, so that's what we want to sort of tackle and try to understand more to make sure that that's not going on. And if it is going on, make people more aware of it um, so they can correct that. Do you think making them more aware of it is part of the solution? And if not, what is? 
That's a good question. I do think it's part of the solution. I think making people aware of where we maybe are falling short of providing equal care to all people is important. I think making people aware of where there are biases or where we are not, you know, meeting sort of a level of equality and justice that we want to be providing in medicine, I, I think is a first step. If this is truly going on where implicit bias is happening, where, or even racism is happening, where people are not um, providing medication for certain conditions um, based upon race or ethnicity, then it, then it comes to the next step is, okay, what interventions can we do to overcome those things? And if there's truly a problem here, which I think there's a chance that there is, then we then have to talk about the next level. How do we intervene to correct this problem and um, provide equal analgesia to all of our patients? Thanks to Dr. Andrew Meltzer and his team at George Washington University. When we get back. So what really put fear into my parents was uh, while I was teething, I uh, had chewed off a good portion of the uh, front of my tongue and that caused a lot of bleeding to occur. The pain of not being able to feel any pain at all. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, we're taking three very different looks at pain. If you woke up this morning and you couldn't feel any pain, what would you do differently? Reenact a scene from a superhero movie? Do cool and somewhat demented party tricks with a lighter? That would be one thing, because you grew up knowing what pain felt like. You'd have a reference point. One wrong brush with a hot stove when you were a kid taught you to be more careful the next time you reached for the pot of bubbling SpaghettiOs. But what if you were born without the ability to feel pain, and those lessons were almost impossible to come by? That's a whole different story. Steve Pete of Kelso, Washington, was born with this condition of not being able to feel pain, which is called... There's uh, several different ways of saying it. You have uh, congenital analgesia, congenital insensitivity to pain, congenital analgia. Uh, it could be classified as an HSAN, which is a heter- hereditary sensory autonomic neuropathy. <laughs> I usually just call it CIP. I like to keep it simple. <laughs> CIP is a rare genetic condition. And when you grow up with it, you don't develop the memories that warn you about what hurts, what's sharp, what's hot, what's broken. I asked Steve to tell me about what first alerted his parents that something was wrong. So what really put fear into my parents was uh, while I was teething, I uh, had chewed off a good portion of the uh, front of my tongue and that caused a lot of bleeding to occur. So that freaked them out. They rushed me to my pediatrician. Fortunately, he kind of had an idea. He'd heard something about children who don't feel pain before. So his first thought was, okay, let's go ahead and test it out. And this is the 1980s, so we didn't have genetic testing available back then. So I guess the best way to test would be to take a, uh, a kind of like a Bunsen burner sort of thing, put it underneath my foot, and then I didn't elicit a painful response to that. So he was like, okay, I'm pretty sure he doesn't feel pain. Blistering was starting to occur underneath my foot. No, nothing negative was going on with myself. So they went ahead and sent me to Seattle for further testing. And testing up there was just running needles up and down my spine. Again, no painful response. So they were like, okay, we're pretty sure he doesn't feel physical pain. And then it wasn't much longer after that when my parents found that my mom was pregnant with my brother. And my brother, he also was born with the same condition. First of all, did your tongue grow back? Did the parts of your tongue grow back? No? 
Oh, no. (laughs) That answers that. Um, (laughs) If you need to have surgery, why would you need to be put under? The majority of surgeries out there that I've had to go through, they all require that somebody is put under for them. Like by law or by default? I think that they want to do it for insurance reasons um, because there's complications that can occur. Like a person can have a heart attack because um, even though you don't feel the pain of a procedure, your body can still go into shock um, from having all these things that are going on just because you're cognizant. I think the only thing that I've gone through that would be kind of considered surgical would be like a tooth removal. And for that, I never do anesthesia. I don't do any local anesthetic or anything like that for that. I've had bones reset without an anesthetic. Wow. How many bones have you broken, more or less, that you know of? Around 80 or 90, somewhere around there. So will you tell me some stories from when you were growing up uh, when you would be hurt and not know it? Uh, <laughs> probably the most dangerous story I've, I have is it was a snowy day. We were just out having fun like people normally do with the snow. And we had this this inner tube and a couple of them went running down the hill and they would jump forward onto the tube and slide down the hill. Uh, so I took a long run for it. I jumped. And when I hit the ground with the tube, I just full on scorpion. Like I, I wiped out, didn't think anything of it, went along about my whole day. And uh, two or three months after that, I started to develop like I had kind of a weird uh, numbness on my arm. Um, and it was until four or five months later, it started to get worse. So I went and got checked out. And the specialist said, have you been in a car wreck in the last couple of weeks? And I was like, no, I haven't. Have you been skydiving? No. It's like, well, the damage on your spinal cord seems to be something that we, we would consider from either a car wreck or somebody who went parachuting. So I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, you got three fractured vertebrae and you've got a uh, compressed disc. So I, I was like, I have no idea what, what caused that to occur. And it wasn't until maybe like another two or three weeks later when I was looking through Facebook and I got like an update or a thing saying one year ago today and I had the picture of me like scorpioning. And I was like, oh crap, that's what happened. That's what did it. I think that was probably like the worst injury I've ever had not feeling pain where I there was nothing to let me know like, hey, um, this is broken or hey, this is bleeding. As an adult, I should know better. That was just dumb. Of me. <laughs> At what point did you fully wrap your head around not only your condition, but the context of your condition? I knew at an early age that uh, what I had was rare and different than the majority of people and definitely was different from everyone who was in my orbit other than my brother. And it wasn't until maybe in my mid teens, like 14, 15, when I started to have some mobility issues where I then understood like, Hey, everything that you've been doing from birth to this point is now causing irreparable harm that you're going to have to deal with for the remainder of your life. And then it probably wasn't until my late teens where I was like, you know what, you need to just quit doing stupid crap, live a very safe and slow lifestyle. I've always enjoyed taking risks, but as I've gotten older, I take very calculated risks. So I, I, my 
understanding of my condition is just one that has kind of just always evolved as I've been going through life. You mentioned your brother, your little brother, Chris, um, who had the same condition and he struggled with it in his own way. Um, is it okay if you talk about his life and death by suicide? Yeah, I, yeah, I can try to. I mean, um, my brother, he struggled for many years with, uh, with alcoholism and depression. And then you have the, the component of not feeling pain. The issues that he was facing physically from having uh, a spinal cord that was rapidly deteriorating and uh, could leave him within a few years uh, being paralyzed definitely added to his depression because uh, he knew that the things that he loved doing the most weren't going to be possible for him. But when you don't feel pain and people see you kind of acting in a quote unquote normal way, they, they just don't see what's going on kind of uh, internally with you and have a judge tell you like, even though you're about to become paralyzed, we can't, you can't claim disability because you're able to walk around right now. But yeah, I mean, it's, it definitely doesn't help just kind of uh, having people just believe what's going on with you when you're suffering from depression as it is. Um, Thank you for talking about them. Um, as I was researching this, I would see headlines and articles that have the word superhero in them. How do you react when you hear the superhero language? I understand why people have that perception. I think it's because when you hear somebody say, there are people out there who don't feel pain. If you hear that for the first time and you think about your own self and not feeling pain, you don't think about yourself as being born not feeling pain. You think of yourself as an adult or a teenager at that moment, hearing that statement, not feeling pain. And then you think, damn, that would be amazing. Like, I could live that way. Um, and in all reality, as an adult, if you suddenly couldn't feel pain, you probably would be, be just fine. You'd be able to adapt a lot quicker at not feeling pain, having felt pain, or you have the knowledge of this type of injury is going to cause this kind of damage throughout my entire life. Like, this is what the outcome is going to be from it. As a kid, you, just, you, you don't have that. You don't have that um the ability to know what's going to come down the road. So yeah, I, I understand why people would say that. I, I don't have a problem with them having that thought. What are the awesome parts of not feeling pain? <laughs> okay, so the whole not having headaches thing is great. Uh, not having ice cream headaches is even better. Um, <laughs> you could just go to town. I can too. Uh, when I was a teenager, I would win so much money off of betting people. I was always like, I bet you I can eat way more ice cream than you can not have an ice cream headache. We'd have like a race. I'd just be winning money left and right. You have three kids. Yep. When your daughter, your first child was born, you didn't know when she was born if she would have the same condition, yeah? How did you find out that she didn't? They uh, pinched her foot. <laughs> In the delivery room? <laughs> yeah. They pinched her foot and they're like, she screamed. So she's like, yeah, you're pretty sure she feels pain. My, my youngest one too. And two people who feel pain can have a child who doesn't feel pain. That can be caused either by the two parents having recessive genes that become dominant and then it creates a child who doesn't feel pain or there's just a 
a random weird gene mutation that occurs in the child. And it's not because of a recessive gene by either of the parents. Uh, and it's just random how genetics works like that every once in a while. If you knew that it was likely that your kids would have the same condition, would you want to have kids? Yeah, I think so. Um, my two youngest, so my son and my youngest daughter, they, uh, they both live with autism. You never know what life is going to throw you away, especially when you have children. Every child's going to have their own set of challenges in life. So it's just kind of, you know, adapting the best you can to take care of them. Since you can't feel pain like the rest of us, how do you describe your understanding of what pain feels like for the rest of us? Or is that like asking me to describe what infrared looks like? Because I don't freaking know. I don't know. It would be like me asking you to explain to me what pain feels like. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> that's it. I mean, that's the end of the question. Then you're, you're right. Because I, I, I can't. So how can you? Yep. <laughs> Fair, very, very good. Throughout this conversation, there's been a lot of serious talk because this is a serious condition with serious lifelong consequences. But there's also been a good amount of laughter. So I wonder, do you try to have a good sense of humor about all this? I like to try to have as good of a sense of humor as possible. Keep things light, not try to be too heavy because... Um, sorry. <laughs> There are plenty of people out there, um, especially those who have it a lot worse than I do. Sorry. <laughs> it's making me think of my brother right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so I, I just try, I try to be positive. I try to be, um, <clears throat> I try to be light about everything. Maybe it's like a, kind of like a fake it until you make it sort of thing. You know, like be happy and then you'll, you'll, you'll just kind of, uh, feel better. But I mean, I just, I try to be happy regardless, um, or not really happy, but just um, try to be in a good mood about stuff. Um, it just it helps me, it helps me a lot. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm, I appreciate you going there. Um, it doesn't help me into my next question, but, and when I thought about this next question, I, I hesitated. Um, but, when people think about their own death or the death of someone they love, they, they think, well, I hope it doesn't hurt. You know that your death will be painless. Mm -hmm. What do you think that does for you? Um, it, may, it makes you really think of my brother um, because the pain that he felt in his own mind was probably a lot more painful than, than anything physical that he was going through. Um, well, of course, it was more than physical, but um, <laughs> uh, the 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 pain that we feel inside can sometimes be more powerful than what we're experiencing externally. So, um, by saying that, when someone goes, at least they're not in pain anymore. I think that that's a statement that could be said about the pain. They're going through internally, not just um, physical pain. Yeah. In an alternate life, would you have chosen to have been born without this condition? No, I, I 
don't think that I would have. Um, some of my greatest friendships have been with other people who don't feel pain who I've not met because of this condition. So if I could change that, I, there's no way that I would. Well, Steve, Pete, thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, thank you for having me on your show. Steve Pete lives with congenital insensitivity to pain, or CIP, in Kelso, Washington, along with his wife and three kids. After the break... It's like walking on a windy day beneath the power line pole and the wire snaps and hits you. It's just absolutely electrifying, shuts you down. So this is where I tell people, I say, lay down and scream! Why an entomologist keeps getting stung and rates the pain with numbers and poetry. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're taking a few looks at pain. Dr. Justin Schmidt has been stung 1,500 times, more or less, by over 80 kinds of insects, all to create and expand his Schmidt Sting Pain Index. He's an entomologist, but I'd also call him a poet. Here's his description of what it feels like to be stung by a slender twig ant. A skinny bully's punch. It's too weak to hurt, but you suspect a cheap trick might be coming. On the giant paper wasp, he says, There are gods. And they do throw thunderbolts. Poseidon has rammed his trident into your breast. And how about the red-headed paper wasp? Immediate, irrationally intense, and unrelenting. This is the closest you'll come to seeing the blue of a flame from within the fire. Those descriptions are from his book, The Sting of the Wild, the story of the man who got stung for science. I asked Dr. Schmidt to explain his sting pain index and what he was trying to prove. Yeah, basically, I was a starving graduate student trying to finish a thesis research. And my question was, what caused the evolution of sociality in bees, wasps, and ants? By sociality, you mean they live together in a colony and they have overlap of mom has babies and babies take care of the next generation and so on. So my hypothesis was that the evolution of sociality occurred strictly because they could defend themselves against nasty things that wanted to eat them. And I said, well, the bigger you are, the more more of you you have together in a colony, the more a bigger thing is going to want to eat you. So the hypothesis was that how you prevent this from happening, which would exterminate you, and that would end the evolution right there pretty quickly, was to have a painful sting. So I said, okay, that's a great hypothesis. Now, what now? How do I measure? And it turns out there was no way to measure the painfulness of a sting. You couldn't put a, electrodes in the skin. You couldn't pull out any blood. You couldn't do it. There's nothing you could do that would give you a scale for the pain. And so I said, well, my nerves tell me something. And I'd been recording over the years the various pains of different things that, you know, just the curiosity. I had no focus in mind. I was just saying, oh, that one really hurt. It hurt for 10 minutes. I said, eh, nah, that was pretty much minor. So I cobbled those together, what I had, and I came up with a sting pain scale of zero to four, zero being that it's so small it can't actually sting you, so it's kind of trivial. And a one is the least painful, and the four, of course, being the most painful. 
So the reason I came up with the scale was simply to answer a question. I had no idea that anybody would give a hoot about this at all. I just thought, well, you know, I, here I am. If I, if I want to be out in the public and not be homeless and get a job, I'd better do something to finish this degree. And that was the genesis of the sting pain scale. Why zero to four? What's the difference between those numbers? And why not zero to 10, zero to 100? Yeah, exactly. That's an excellent question. And I kind of grappled with why not make zero to 10 or zero to 100. People like to think in terms of like 10. And my wife's a family doctor and she, you know, they often ask patients, you know, how, how much is the pain on a zero to 10 scale? And the problem is that nobody can really reliably tell the difference between, say, a seven and an eight. Yeah, you know, and I determined that most of the time, those extra numbers just cause confusion. And I came up with zero to four, which basically is one to four, one, two, three, and four. So it's only four choices. The difference between a two and a three. Well, I can assure you, if you get stung by a two and you get stung by a three, you will know the difference. The difference between a higher number is substantially more painful than the lower number. So one like a sweat bee or a tiny little uh, fire ant, one fire ant, which is kind of a hard thing to get stung by. Usually get stung by a bunch of them, but one fire and it kind of hurts. Yeah, you know, you don't like it and you swear a little bit and, and squash whoever it was that stung you and then move on. But then a two would be something like a honeybee or a yellow jacket. And if you get one of those, oh, whoa, yeah, that, 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 that hurts. And so then you go up to a three and three would be something like a very large tropical paper wasp or out here where I am in the west of North America, we have the harvester ants and they hurt and they really hurt. And the kind of the proof of the pudding test that I ask people is they hold up one of each, a harvester ant and a honeybee and say, now if you are, have a gun to your head and you have to get stung by one of these, which one will you pick? Oh, I'll absolutely pick the honeybee. Again, differentiating these category numbers. Yeah, so you, you can clearly tell the difference between them. And of course, the four is one that you don't want to ever have to endure something like that. Give me an example of a four. Well, the, the most common example that North Americans would run into would be a tarantula hawk. That's a great big uh, wasp, a spider wasp. What they do for a living is they sting tarantulas, the, you know, the world's biggest spiders, <laughs> and they feed them to their young. Basically, the young develop off the uh, of eating the paralyzed tarantula. And these things, it's uh, as I say, it's like walking on a windy day beneath the power line pole, and the wire snaps and hits you. It's just absolutely electrifying, shuts you down, knocks you out. There's no way you can be. Oh, I'm tough, you know, I'm, I can do this, I'm not going to let this bother me. Yeah, right. You're going to be stumbling around, you're going to fall and hit your head on a curb or something like that, trying to be, be macho. So this is where I classically tell people, I say, lay down and scream! That's your advice for if you get bit by a tarantula hawk. Yes, and if you lay down, you can't go any lower. You can't hit your head on a curb if you're already laying down. If you scream, it's useful in the... You only have so much brain power, you know, so many nerves that can do so much in your brain. If you're diverting a bunch of those to screaming, then those aren't focused on the pain. And what you want to do is not focus on the pain. You want to focus on something else. Like screaming is much more fun than pain, at least I think so. 
And so if you can scream for two or three minutes, by the time you're done screaming, typically the pain is pretty much gone away. It's understood that pain doesn't always necessarily indicate damage, which seems in some ways counterintuitive. Could you flesh that out for me, so to speak? Yeah, the effectiveness of a sting is twofold. One is the pain, and the other is the damage. Well, damage has the problem that it takes time to get there, and so you may end up in somebody's tummy before the damage actually makes any difference. So you have to get the attention of whoever is attacking you. Pain is the immediate attention grabber. How do you think your research and this pain scale translates to you know, somebody being in a hospital because they broke their arm and they've got the 1 to 10 scale and they're trying to figure it out. Do you hope that your research does translate into human responses and reporting of pain? I, I would hope there'd be some benefit. In fact, my wife is saying she was talking to some of the physicians at Stanford University about my pain scale. And they said, wow, that's a good idea because we can't distinguish between a three and a four when the patient says that. They often just say five, which tells you nothing useful at all. She said a, a pain scale of zero to four, then you can tell if somebody says they're a one, you don't worry too much. If they say they're a four, then you know, ooh, this is something serious. It's one of these things that the standard pain scale of 10, originally it was called the McGill pain scale. I think it's still called that. And that, that required the physician to look at the patient not just trust their words, but see how much pain expression they have around their eyes and their facial expressions, see whether they're lying or not. Because, you know, we're, we're very good at lying, especially like I was in physical therapy at one time for an injury, and they're just excruciatingly pain, and I was lying to the therapist because I wanted to keep the therapy going. And he could sort of tell, oh, this is hurting too much, so he sort of backed off, even though I was lying and trying to tell him to, you know, keep going. And he he could tell that, you know, I was being deceitful. And I don't know if I answered the question, but I'd hope it does something to at least enliven the situation. When will you know when you're done with your work? I don't think anybody ever is done with their work. Or at least we hope they are not. You always want to just add more data points. I have like 84 data points right now in the sting pain. There's a handful, three, four, five maybe species out there in the world that would be interesting to know what they are. But unfortunately, most of them are pretty hard to get to. Some of them are in the middle of Congo and Africa. Some of them are in the rainforest of eastern Peru, and some of them are in Asia and you know, various places of this sort. So it's not worth the heroics of going to get, you know, one more. It's not going to change, you know, the science of what I've done, but it would be nice to be able to, you know, just add a few things here and there and answer a few questions. You can get predictions and you can predict that such and such would hurt. For example, hornets, which are in the news, particularly a little earlier, these murder hornets. Yeah, I can predict based on what I've done over the years, it would be about a three or two and a half to a three is on the pain scale. I don't know. That's just a prediction based on what I know of biology of the hornets and pain and that sort of thing. 
I don't know the answer to that. And so I suppose it'd be nice to be able to test that that prediction. See, is it actually a two or a two and a half or a three? Or is Schmidt all way wet and it's actually a four? And it also, it's been very helpful in deciding what kind of research questions you might want to answer. Like for the medical field, one of the things we want to do is have something that causes pain but no damage. If you can cause pain without causing damage, then you can test some of your experimental drugs and materials, see if you can stop that pain. And so I predicted for that, use the tarantula hawk because they cause extreme pain, but they have basically no damage. And so you can you can use predictions to kind of winnow down the field of what do you want to look for. So I think we could probably use some real-life remedies from someone who knows best. So besides lying down and screaming, if you're stung by something with an impressive bite, how should we reduce the pain when it happens? Put a little paste of salt and water on it. That's all you need to do. Just get a salt shaker and dump some into your hand. Just make it a little bit wet and blop it onto your sting. And usually that'll help ease the pain. You could try ice as well. Problem with ice is usually what it does is it stops the pain, but it also stops the diffusion of the venom out of the area. So as soon as you take the ice off, it comes roaring back again. So you're just putting it on hold. Well, Dr. Justin Schmidt, thank you so much for talking with me today. And I say this with total admiration and affection. I really hope you get stung by a murder hornet. (laughs) I really hope that for you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. That was Dr. Justin Schmidt, entomologist and author of The Sting of the Wild, the story of the man who got stung for science. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. To subscribe and listen back to previous shows about things like antinatalism, speech disfluencies, psychics, what it's like to be a meme, and life and recovery from drugs and alcohol, visit ctpublic.org audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf. And if pain is a part of your life, I really want to hear your thoughts. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.